Hello and welcome to episode 78 of this little podcast we call Two Chairs Talking. My name is Perry Middlemas and I'm here as always with my long-term friend David Grigg. Hello David. Hi Perry, how's things? Not too bad, not too bad. I think there's a slight change in the air. I know it's cold in the morning, well not as cold as some people's places, but no, no. Cold, cold for Victoria in yes. the morning, but it's um, crisp days and uh, I think... Uh, seeing a bit of sunshine, mm. and I think I'm starting to see a few little uh, buds starting to appear on the flowers, which yeah, is spring and has trees. Sprung. Which, spring has sprung, which is all all to the good. It makes you feel just that little bit better with life. Mm. I think uh, when you get through that the the worst of the winter, and you can start thinking that um, things are just starting to refresh and go uh, come anew, which is which is good. But how have you been? Oh, pretty well. I still haven't caught the dreaded lurgy, but uh, we'll see. We'll see how things go. We're just uh, trying to keep our heads down and, uh, you know, that's all right. It hasn't been any different over the last uh, three or four months, really. So, no, no we, we've been good. I've, I had a birthday. That was oh, good. So. Yes, and happy birthday to you for that. That was a while ago, but yeah, thank you. Uh, 21 again, so that's, um, that's uh, all right. Well, yes, I, I, I can, the thing is that, that my last birthday, I could say to myself, oh, well, I'm, I'm just turning 70. But now this year, I had to say, uh, now I'm in my 70s. Oh, yes. It's a bit you've... different. feels a bit older than that. Anyway, mm. so there you go. I'm in yes, my you've... 70s. You've moved. You've moved into the uh, into the straight and started to accelerate, uh, whether you like it or not. Yes. <laughs> and what lies at the bottom of the hill? Who knows? Yes. Okay. Let's well, not go, go there. there. Don't go there. Let's just yeah. sort of keep on carrying on and see see what we can get up to. Yeah. So, um, bit of news uh, around well, we've at the got moment. Lots Actually, of news. There's, got there's lots, lots of news. news so many moment. things lots of, dropping. Lots of literary news. So, do you want to start us off? I'll do that. So, the Miles Franklin Award winner. Uh, was announced just a, a day or so after we last broadcast, I think. And it went to Bodies of Light by Jennifer Down. And uh, I could just read what the Miles Franklin Award people said about it. Um, Bodies of Light invites readers to witness the all-too-often concealed destructive forces of institutionalized care. With extraordinary skill and compassion, Down has written an important book which speaks to an urgent issue in contemporary Australian life. So it's good. I should go out and get a copy because it looks interesting. So, yes. Yep. I think we should. That's right. So that's that one. Yep. What else have we got? We've got the Booker Prize long list, which dropped. I uh, don't know that I want to read the entire list of them. There are 15 uh, books in the long list. Probably the one that's interesting to talk about is uh, is the fact that Alan Garner, at the age of 87, has been nominated for his new novel, Trickle Walker. Hmm. Uh, I bought a quick copy of this as an e-book a few months ago, but I haven't yet read it, so I must. Now I must. Now, Alan Garner, if anybody remembers, wrote several, several highly acclaimed novels for young people in the 1960s. Hmm. You might recall his books, The Owl Service... The Weirdstone of Brisingerman and Redshift, all of which uh, were excellent. Uh, so the fact that he's still writing 60-some years on and being nominated for a prestigious award like the Booker, I, I think that's pretty remarkable. It is. Yeah. So are there any, have you looked at the list? Do you have any on there that you want to no, say anything really about? Want, no. Well, there's a Karen Joy Fowler book there, I think. Yeah, Booth. that looks interesting. It's about Booth, about uh, the guy who shot Lincoln, yeah, or his family. Or his family. Yeah. Um, uh, I note that there are... No Australians. 
No, no. No New Zealanders? No. Uh, I believe there are six Americans on the list. Mm. Uh, I'd, I think the Booker Prize had a tendency to lose a little bit of its luster when it moved away from its original intention of giving the award to um, uh, Commonwealth writers and, and Irish writers. I think that opening it up to the Americans... Who have their own awards. Who have their own awards, yes. which are not open to anybody else. And no, I think no. that these... I think it's basically... A, no, I just think it was a mistake. Yeah, yeah. But, hey... Still, so, never mind. That's my view. It's been there for about 10 years now, and um, it'll um, uh, keep on going because I don't think they're going to change it back. Okay, so uh, a few genre awards that um, I'd like to have a bit of a chat about um, that have just popped up in the last... Uh, in the last week or two. Uh, the sh- uh, shortlist for the 2022 British Fantasy Awards uh, have been uh, released. Now, these um, uh, the two major things that they give out, uh, in, they give the Best Fantasy Novel, which is called the Robert Holdstock Award, and also the Best Horror Novel, which is the August Durleth Award. And I can tell you that um, uh, one of our favourites, She Who Became the Sun by Jelly Parker Chan, is up for the best fantasy novel. Yeah, I didn't know uh, that was good. Mm. I'm not entirely sure exactly what the criteria for this is, but I believe that it is probably fantasy novels that have been published in the UK in the previous 12 months and given out probably by the British Fantasy Association, I would think. Yeah. So there are, uh, as I said, um, Oh, what are we go? Six in each category. Um, I've only read She Who Became the Sun. I haven't read any of the others. Some of them I recognise and some I've never heard of. In the best novella category, we have A Spindle Splintered by Alex E. Harrow. Yeah, which is pretty uh, good. Which, which is pretty good, which is a retelling of the um, Sleeping Beauty uh, fairy tale, which was quite good. Um, Oh, they've got Treacle Walker by Alan Garner as a novella. Mm. Maybe I think it it's quite short, a short book. Is yeah. it? Oh, okay. All right. Well, there we go. We should probably read that and give that a real good hammering at some point between sure. the two of us because it's, it was starting to crop up in a few awards. We mm. should um, have a look at it. Uh, in the best short story uh, category, we've got O2 Arena, which we've read, and I think that's about it for those. In the best non-fiction, though, we do have Dangerous Visions and New Worlds, Radical Science Fiction, 1950 to 1965, edited by Andrew Nettie and Ian McIntyre, which we've spoken about on this podcast previously. Uh, it has a number of uh, essays in there by people that we know, including um, friend of the podcast, Lucy Sussex. Uh, so that will be good to see that um, those two Melbourne gentlemen are up for a, another uh, award, uh, of course, they are up also for the best uh, related work in the Hugo's. So it'll be interesting to see what happens with them in less than a month now. Oh, and I should mention right here and now that um, the Hugo Award voting is closing soon, David. Yes, um, it is. I um, have got one last thing to finish off, uh, so I need to make a note to myself of thinking award voting. Yes, exclamation mark, exclamation mark. Double underlined so that I can remember when that is. I think it's it's only about 10, nine or 10 days. Yeah, I think uh, so. So it's night. only going to be a bit over a week uh, to get that finished. Uh, but by the time this goes to air, it'll probably be only a couple of days. So it'll be around about the 10th or the 11th, I think. Don't quote me, but it's sometime about that. Best thing to do, get to it as soon as you can so you don't forget about it and 
get it over and done with. I'm just about done, but I've got one last category to fix up and then just do a final run through to make sure I'm happy with all of my um, uh, all of my uh, uh, choices and um, yeah, and just see see how that runs. Now we have another award, a new award in the SF and uh, fantasy fields. Um, uh, some people might say as if we need another award, but we do have one, and there we go. So this is the Le Guin Prize for Fiction, first time it's ever been um, awarded, and it is being presented by the Ursula K. Le Guin Literary Trust, and they've announced the shortlist, and it's an inaugural $25,000, I assume that's US dollar, cash prize, given to a single book-length book work of imaginative fiction. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, I will actually read out what the um, uh, the list is. Sure. Uh, Snake Falls to Earth by Darcy Little Badger. Heard of it? Haven't read it. The House of Dust by uh, Khadija Adala Bajaba. Forgive me if I get the names wrong. Appleseed by Matt Bell. Summer in the City of Roses by Michelle Ruiz Kell. How High We Go in the Dark by Sequoia Nagamatsu. The Employees, which I've heard very good things about this book, very good things, a workplace novel of the 22nd century uh, by Olga Raven, uh, translated by Martin Aitken, Elder Race, which we've read by Adrian Tchaikovsky, The Past is Red, which I've also read. Which I liked a lot. Mm. Catherine M. Valente, yeah, you liked that more than I did. And then After the Dragons by Cynthia Zhang. Hmm. So this... Um, the award will be announced on October the 21st. So it's a juried prize. They have uh, one, two, three, four, five judges. And it's going to be announced on October the 21st, which was Ursula Le Guin's birthday. Indeed. So that's not a bad idea, fixing, uh, going, doing it that way. That seems like a um, um, good thing. And so we'll keep an eye on that one as well and let people know what happens with that one when that one comes out. Sure. But wait, there's more. Um, we also have the Age Book of the Year shortlist, which is also came out. And again, I don't think I'll go, go through the whole thing. Um, oh, I, I can whisk through it pretty quickly. Um, one of the books is the Miles Franklin winner, Bodies of Light, by Jennifer Down. We also have In Moonland by Miles Allinson, Allinson. Cold Enough for Snow by Jessica O, A-A-U. Um, After Story by Larissa Berent. Uh, the Signal Line by Brendan Colley. And Love and Virtue by Diana Reed. Now, of those, I've read none, but uh, I would certainly like to read um, Bodies of Light, given that uh, it's been nominated for these things. They also I, no, I was just going to say that I've read uh, Cold Enough for Snow, and we'll be discussing it later in this podcast. Oh, excellent! Right, and they also have a non-fiction category this year, so that's interesting. But I won't, I won't list all of those. First time ever for the non-fiction, I yeah, believe it is. Yeah. And um, this is only the second year where they've reinstated it. It stopped early 2010s, about 2012, about 10 years ago. It was restated, uh, reinstated last year, so restarted up. Uh, good to see. Um, uh, I, like, I like the Age uh, Book of the Year Award. They have a tendency to give it to something that is not necessarily the same as all the others. And uh, so you get a bit of a... Slightly different look. The, the classic one I think um, they gave was to um, uh, What We Didn't See Coming by Stephen Amsterdam, which was a, um, a series of sort of 
interconnected short stories in a post-apocalyptic Australia um, where people are not... The whole thing hasn't collapsed, but people are in a bit of trouble and they're trying to work their way through uh, the post, post-climatic um, collapse. Uh, so that was that, that, uh, I thought that was a very, very interesting book indeed. Yeah. Now, uh, to finish off with the news here, I've, um, I've got a bit of bad news in that um, uh, we have a death of uh, David Ireland. Uh, who, David Ireland was an Australian author who was recently passed away in late July uh, at the age of 94. Uh, he won the Miles Franklin Award three times mm. uh, in the 1970s. Uh, in 1971 for The Unknown Industrial Prisoner, in 1976 for The Glass Canoe, and in 1979 for A Woman of the Future. Now, I think The Woman of the Future was fairly what we might refer to as either genre or genre adjacent, uh, Which, I, but I haven't read it. I have it, and I keep on thinking you must get to this at some point. But I have read The Glass Canoe, and that was, a, I don't know, that was an odd little book because it was set, set in a pub, and it was just about the stories associated with the drinkers that came in there on a regular basis into the pub. Certainly interesting. Uh, you'd have to go and have a look at the other books that were around at that particular time in 76 um, to see how it fitted. But it was um, an odd choice for a literary novel for um, uh, for the Miles Reckon. But anyway, uh, it's unfortunate that uh, he's passed away. Three um, major novels and uh, a number of others as well. So um, they're all passing away, David. They're all going. Oh, yeah. Now, have you got anything else? Or no, no, I think that's think? more than enough. I think that's more than enough. I think yeah. we've done. Yeah. There seems to be a lot of stuff coming up, but I think that the um, as we get through to the middle of the year, those genre awards in particular are um, uh, there's not so many of them. We'll probably start getting all the crime fiction awards now uh, cropping up because they have a tendency to have their um, either their conventions or their. Uh, uh, decision-making processes later in the year, uh, later than a lot of the uh, science fiction and fantasy genre awards. So we'll see how we go when they crop up. And uh, if we find any that we think are of interest, we shall let people know because I think they're um, I think they're important to know uh, what uh, what what's out and about. Oh, one other thing that I did know. Uh, Barack Obama has um, released his summer reading list as he oh, does every right. year, David. Yeah. And uh, we have one novel that I uh, think that you may be talking about. Um, uh, is that the uh, Sea of Tranquility? Oh, yeah, Sea of Tranquility is on his list. Yes, is on, right. on the list. Mm. And one of my favourites, um, uh, Razor Blade Tears yep. by S.A. Cosby, uh, which is doing very well. I, as you recall with that one, I thought it was an excellent novel, but just didn't quite land the ending, I thought. I thought the ending was just a little bit too predictable. But otherwise, it was a really good ride all the way right through to the end. It just, the, the ending was a bit bumpy and, oh, well, you know, not as good as I would have would have hoped. I would have liked it to be a little bit more surprising. But you can't have everything, cause, but the ride was pretty good. And he's getting better. And this is only his third novel. Oh, wow. Uh, and uh, so... Um, He's a bloke to watch. Indeed. He's a bloke to watch. Right. So should we just move on then if we've finished all of, all of our news <laughs> so, for, yes. this, for this particular episode? I think that's probably a good idea. Yeah, I think now, so. 
Yeah, and so what we're going to talk about this time is um, what we've been reading lately, not necessarily in any particular genre, not to any particular schedule. It's just, what have you been reading? That's so, right. David, what have you been reading lately? Well, I've been reading a wide variety of stuff, really. And the first book I'm going to talk about is called The Girl Savage by Catherine Rundle. Uh, now, this is a, a book for younger readers. And uh, the reason I read it, read it is that I uh, I bought it for my 10-year-old granddaughter alongside three others, all of which were by Catherine Rundle. Because um, last year, I think it was last year, I, I read and really enjoyed the author's book, Rooftoppers. Um, and um, of course, once I, I had actually gotten these uh, in the mail for to, to pass on to my granddaughter, I thought, well, I better I better read them first, make sure that they're suitable. Uh, Absolutely. You know, I don't want to be anything in there that wouldn't be suitable for, for her age and reading level. So, so no, that wouldn't that wouldn't do it all. No, no. no, so, no. So I've been reading through them and enjoying them too. Anyway, so this is um, the 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 girl Savage. Now, the protagonist of the book is young Wilhelmina Silva, known by all as just Will who's grown up in rural Zimbabwe on a farm where her father is the foreman. Now, her mother died of malaria when Will was very young, and she's been allowed to grow up on this farm with very little supervision. She dresses roughly, she only washes infrequently, she climbs trees, gets into scrapes, she rides horses, she speaks the native language fluently, Uh, her closest friends are the farm's native horse boys, She's the wild savage of the title, but she loves this life and this place. And so she, she's really, for, for her, she's leading this, uh, you know, um, idyllic sort of life. But then her father, too, succumbs to malaria. And the elderly owner of the farm, Captain Brown, uh, marries a cynical woman who's intent on outliving him and becoming a rich widow. And it's not long before Will and Mrs. Brown are in conflict and uh, Will is packed off to a boarding school in England, a place she has never been. And although she's been bought new clothes for the trip, Will burns these uh, in a furious protest about what's happening. And so she's sent off basically in what she's wearing and she arrives in cold, damp England, very poorly dressed to withstand the cold weather. And arriving at the prestigious girls' school where she's been enrolled, she's instantly the subject of mockery and the cruelty of other children. And when her misery overflows, Will contrives to escape from the school, and uh, for quite a while she lives the life of a fugitive on the streets, hoping somehow to find a way to return to Zimbabwe. But she finds trying to live wild in London far harder than she ever thought. So... It's a challenging book, um, and I think I may actually hold it off for a year before I give it to my daughter, my granddaughter. But I, I, I like this a lot. Uh, Will's boldness and courage in adversity make her a compelling character, and her story is very engaging. That's a bit of a tough read for a child. Um, the book does eventually reach an unexpectedly happy ending, which seemed impossible for quite a while. Now, I imagine that m- most of this book, or much of this book anyway, is based on the author's own experiences, as I see from Wikipedia that Catherine Rundle spent much of her early childhood living in Zimbabwe, where she attended school only in the mornings and never had to wear shoes. And when her father, a diplomat, had to move to Belgium, Rundle, by her own account, suffered the ca- same kind of culture shock that Will does in this book. 
Now, this book's done very well. It's been shortlisted or won several awards, either under the title of The Girl Savage or under the title Cart Wheeling in Thunderstorms. In Britain, it won the Blue Peter Award, the Waterstones Children's Book Prize, and the Costa Children's Book Award. And in the US, it won the 2015 Boston Globe Horn Book Award for Fiction. I, I enjoyed it a lot, but might just wait off one year before I, I pass it on to my granddaughter. So some of the other books I, I got for her are a bit more suitable, I think. Yep, sometimes we have to be a little bit careful about when we start children reading certain books, but yep. uh, I think... I do think they can surprise us as to um, oh, that's very true. Uh, how uh, mature they can be in terms of reading material. They can see through um, through some of it, but you just you do have to be a little careful from time to time, and and that makes that makes sense. I'm going to talk about a Stephen King novel, not a recent one, uh, but one from the from 2006. Uh, I'm still a ways behind on a lot of Stephen King, so I've kept on buying them over the years, but haven't necessarily read them all. And I'm, every now and again, I try to catch up uh, by by reading reading another one. And this one is called uh, Lisey's Story. Uh, this was the winner of the 2006 Bram Stoker Award for Best Novel, and I can't really say it's one of his best, to be perfectly frank. It's one of the one of his novels that he's written about um, writers, and he's done a number of these, you know, sort of. Uh, the Dark Half, A Bag of Bones, and this classic of all time, of course, is The Shining. Um, but this is another one of those, although it's interesting to note that in this case, uh, the main writer that we're going to be dealing with is off stage for most of the novel. That's because when the novel starts, he's dead. So, which is you know, a fairly easy way for you to be off stage and sort of uh, makes a lot of sense. So anyway... Lisey Landon is the widow of the famous novelist Scott Landon, who's died two years before the start of this particular novel. And, of course, he just died probably at his desk and just dropped dead. So uh, he hadn't really got around to getting all of his papers in order. Uh, And so his whole study and everything else has just basically been left pretty much as it was when he died. And Lisey's only really just only starting to getting around to beginning the process of clearing out out the study. And she's been hounded a number of times by a number of um, uh, literary institutions, universities and so on, who are basically trying to uh, get access to her husband's papers because they believe that he had um, uh, left behind a number of stories that were probably unpublished, uh, maybe even a lot of novels that were unpublished, uh, and they would really like to be able to get their hands on it to edit it and therefore put it out and get a name for themselves as having discovered this brand new um, uh, story by uh, by Scott Landon. Now, Landon, um, I gather, was basically... He was one of those... It was a bit like sort of... Vonnegut started out in the genre and then moved away from it and then got a literary, uh, got a lot of literary uh, accolades and started winning some major awards. Uh, but he hadn't been too far into his career uh, when he died. So he's probably in his 50s or 60s when he, when he died, but he still had a fair bit of time left to go. So anyway, so Lisey's basically started to clear out all this information, trying to tell everybody to go away and, uh, while she gets into it. But somebody turns up at the doorstep who isn't so much interested in Landon's work as actually in having control over uh, over her. He purports to say that he's there to try and get the information for a particular academic. 
but he attacks her and threatens further assaults if she doesn't hand over these particular documents and puts her into a fair, fair amount of distress uh, and uh, actually sort of really injures her quite badly. Uh, while this is going on and in subsequent, subsequent days, Lisey reflects on her marriage and slowly comes to realise as she goes through her past life that with her husband, that her husband had many long-term problems that had uh, been founded in his childhood that he had been trying to work his way through all the way through his life and through his fiction and through and through his life and that he was using her really as almost a crutch to be able to help him get through and she hadn't realised to the extent the extent to which he had been doing that. Now she also discovers that after she read some of his work that he was able to escape to a fantasy world to deal with them and she remembers a number of conversations that she had with him and he used to basically go off into a what seems like a few but actually he was able to physically visit this particular fantasy world by getting into a particular state and walking through a particular forest going past a particular point and then moving on into the fantasy world and for some reason or other she finds herself able to travel to that same world to help her solve her own problems which she does and she meets her husband there, so he's not, as I said, he's not off stage all the time, but he's off stage most of it. She meets her husband there and discusses with him what happened and what she should be doing and how she should be going about things. Because he's sitting there and waiting. Now, whether he's waiting for her or whether he's waiting until he gets to the certain point where he's decided he's had enough and he will go off into death and disappear is not really terribly clear. The, the difficulty with this particular book, it's, it's long and it's slow. Um, it's like 600 pages, or thereabouts, five to 600 pages. The supernatural element, which is the thing that King's mostly known for all the way right through in all of his writings, that doesn't really start to appear until quite some way into this particular novel. And the pacing of the book is just all over the place. It just it goes... It's very slow to get started, to build up. It's a lot of build-up. You think, yeah, well, actually, it's... It's okay. And then it starts going up really, really quickly and then slows down again. It goes really quickly again and then slows down again. And you really don't get the feeling when you get to the end of it that it was very satisfactory in terms of the way that it was paced, the way that it was written. I don't look at this as being one of uh, Stephen King's best novels. If you're a completist, I would suggest you probably read it. If you like his stories of writers and the, the way that he deals with the writing process and uh, the impacts that can have on authors or the way authors utilise the writing process to work through their own uh, personality problems, well, then this probably is a good one for you. I gave it three out of five, um, and it's not really one of his best at all. But, hey, as I said, if you're a completist, you'll need to read it. Yeah, but even Stephen King, it is, you know, he's less than best. is still pretty good. Well, he's still pretty good. I mean, there are some really lovely pieces of writing in this mm. that really just flow along really nicely. But um, it's not, no, it's not top draw for me, for Stephen King. But anyway, there we go. All righty. Okay, well, I'm going to roll on to Sea of Tranquility, which we mentioned was on Barack Obama's uh, summer reading list. Um, this is by Emily St. John Mandel, who you might recall wrote um, Station Eleven um, and uh, another book called The Glass Hotel. 
which I've, uh, I think I've talked about on the podcast before. So, Sea of Tranquility. Uh, this is a, what we say, gently paced handling of some traditional science fictional ideas with a few unexpected twists along the way. Um, one thing which was unexpected to me was that it's a kind of sequel to Mendel's previous novel, The Glass Hotel, uh, with some of the same characters, although that earlier novel was pretty much entirely a work of uh, pure realism, whereas there's no doubt that this one is SF. So, um, the book is told in sections set in four different periods of time, each section with a different main character. It's, uh, that's a structure we've seen before in such books as Cloud Atlas by David Mitchell and um, Cloud Cuckoo Land by Anthony Durr. It works well here. Um, we be- begin with uh, Edwin St. Andrews, who's a young man just arriving in Canada. He's a remittance man, which means that he's been banished to the colony by his English family and given a regular but small allowance with the expectation that he'll stay there. He's spoken out too boldly and critically about the British Raj in India, and he's thus in disgrace. Not really knowing what to make of his life, Edwin eventually finds his way north to the tiny settlement of Kayette on Vancouver Island. Uh, And after a few weeks there, he has a very strange experience while walking in the woods. Though it only lasts for a few seconds, he's suddenly blinded. He feels himself inside some vast space and hears strange noises. A violin is being played, and then a louder, incomprehensible sound that he, he doesn't know what, what it is. He is unnerved by this experience and wonders about his sanity. Then we move on to the modern day with a character called Mina, who is a friend of Vincent, the protagonist of The Glass Hotel. As this section opens, Vincent's brother Paul is putting on a concert in which he replays some video which Vincent shot when, when she was young and living in Kayette. And the video shows an experience similar to that of Edwin St. Andrews many decades earlier. We move on a couple of hundred years later still, that is into our own future. We meet an author called Olive who lives in a colony on the moon. At the moment, she is on Earth on a global tour to promote her new book, Marion Bad, which is a novel with many characters and settings, but featuring a worldwide pandemic which kills millions. This becomes highly self-referential as while she's on Earth, Uh, A real pandemic is just breaking out. And as Olive leaves Earth, she too is to experience this strange momentary shift in consciousness. These three periods of time and the strange experiences of Edwin, Vincent and Olive are tied together eventually by a character from the fourth period of the book, a man called Gaspari, who also lives on the moon, but centuries on even from Olive's time. And this character's story is the only one which is told in the first person. It's not giving too much away to say that time travel is involved, but also the unnerving idea that we may all just be living in some immense computer simulation of reality. And that that simulation may have some occasional software glitch. So I I thought the book ended in a satisfying way with the resolution of the mysteries that it poses. I, I, I thought it was all very cleverly done. Each of the four main characters of the book is well drawn and their stories are engaging. I liked it a lot. I do admit that I was annoyed by technical inaccuracy of a couple of things. The idea that colonies on the moon could use gravity generators to create Earth normal gravity there is a casually thrown away bit of nonsense, I think. And also there's the lack of any light speed delay when Olive talks to her partner on the moon while she's on Earth. You know, there's no one and a half second delay or anything. I'll, I'll forgive the book those lapses, but just... It's also worth noting that Sea of Tranquility was written in the depths of the COVID-19 pandemic, 
during an extended lockdown. And in the book, Olive undergoes just such a difficult-to-endure lockdown when she returns to the moon. Uh, there's also one thing I'd like to note, too. Uh, the title of the book, which Olive is on tour promoting, Marion Bad, obviously references the 1961 film Last Year at Marion Bad, which, like the book, also has confused and overlapping timelines. So I think there's a little, you know, little author's joke in there. So, yeah, look, I liked it a lot. So we'll see see how it does next year in, in the, the Hugo's next year, see if it gets nominated. I would think that it probably will. I mean, Station Eleven got a fairly good rap when it came out. I was just interested to note that Station Eleven is um, set, as I recall, after or around the time of a pandemic, yeah. worldwide pandemic. Is that the same one that is um, Olive's pandemic? Um, that's a good question. Or, no, no, I don't, I don't think so. Just a, just just another one in a rolling cascade, cascading rolling roller coaster of pandemics. Well, that, of course, um, Station Eleven was written before COVID nineteen. Yeah, uh, yep. whereas this one was written after. So interesting. I just thought that you know that would might be an interesting thing if um, if it was hooked into it because it could just slide past and give a nice little sort of reference. I mean, if she's dealing with uh, this particular book where you say that one of the characters is a friend of a character from the previous novel, just having that slight little hook back to the very first one, yeah, that, that might have been It's good. interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it is interesting. Yeah. Well, I'm going to go back, David. Ah, back, back. 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 Not way back, but back to the 1950s with um, a, an all-time, all-time great book. But there's something else I want to talk to you about with this particular book. And I, 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 look, I'll just tell you, it's The Guns of Navarone by Alastair MacLean. Yeah. Now, Alastair MacLean was one of um, uh, the 1950s and 1960s. Um, uh, he was one of the best-selling authors around at the time. I believe that his book sold somewhere north of 160 million copies around the world, which is a warehouse load or three, I would have thought. That's mm. quite, a lot of, quite a lot of novels. Now, uh, he's known for things like HMS Ulysses, Where Eagles Dare, which was made into a, um, uh, a film with uh, uh, Richard Burton and uh, Clint Eastwood. Uh, the Guns of Navarone, of course, which was also made into a film with um, uh, Gregory Peck and uh, Anthony Quinn. Uh, there was a follow-up, Force 10 from Navarone, which featured a uh, very young Harrison Ford, as I recall. Yeah. Uh, and there was also Ice Station Zebra. Uh, and with had which had uh, Rock Hudson and did that also have Richard Burton in it? I can't recall. Mm, may have done. Don't not terribly sure. Anyway, um, the guns are never own. Most of us will recall this as being one of the all-time great movies which we saw in our um, early childhoods or teens, if we're of a certain age, David, namely our age. Yeah. And I'm pretty absolutely certain I saw this when I was probably. In high school, so I was anywhere between the ages of twelve and fifteen when I saw it. It was absolutely perfect time to see some of this. But now, anyway, to give you a bit of an indication, this is a World War Two action thriller, um, uh, and it's it's actually a very good example of its type. Uh, and try as they might, the film, although I've actually got a sneaking suspicion that you can run an argument that the film of this particular book might have been just a touch better than the book itself, which is a bit odd because you don't really get that terribly often. Um, but try as they might, the film production crew couldn't really stuff it up because the the baseline material for this is really quite a good adventure. Now, for those that aren't aware of it, it's set 
mostly on the fictional Greek island of Navarone, which is just off the Turkish coast. And uh, this novel involves a five-man commando team charged with destroying a major gun emplacement that is threatening Allied shipping in the eastern Mediterranean. In particular, there's another island in the Mediterranean in which a large number of Allied troops have been holed up and are, um, can't get off uh, unless they can get a couple of big destroyers in to come all the way right through uh, the Mediterranean, almost right to the Turkish coast, get offload all these men and take them out again. The difficulty is the gun emplacement is lined up on Navarone, which is going to blow the hell out of those ships as soon as they come anywhere within view. And, of course, everything's got to be done by next Thursday. You know, you start off and um, the uh, they have to... They have to take the boat from one particular island over to another one. They have to get to the bottom of the cliff. They have to climb up the top of the cliff, go through all the way across the island. And the island, of course, is um, completely overrun with uh, German troops everywhere all over the place looking after this big gun emplacement. They've got to work their way all the way across the island, get to the gun emplacement and blow it up and save, save, save the universe. Just as those destroyers, David, just as they <laughs> are crossing in front. It's almost as if the guys were about to shoot the cannons off when they get blown up. Oh, what wonderful stuff. <laughs> it's absolutely... I love this. I really, yeah, oh, no, yeah, I, I'm a sucker for this sort of stuff, yeah, right? Yeah. Especially on the big screen, especially if you're sitting there as a Saturday matinee and it's blasting away all over the place. It's going so bloody fast. You don't care whether there's holes in the plot. It just goes. And that's all you want. Um... And that's what this one does. It's got a frenetic... Once it gets going, it's got a pretty frenetic pace and it just does not let up. And uh, it's quite... It's, look, it's really quite a good example of this particular action thriller. Alistair MacLean, uh was good at this. And if you think about it, it was written 12 years after the end of the Second World War. So by that stage, people were starting to get a bit more perspective on what had happened. And they were probably feeling a lot more comfortable about being able to read a bit more about it, the, the daring do and uh, actions of uh, people that are going to, to get in and uh, and do all these sort of commando raids. And they became very, very popular. There was quite a lot of them, um, like Where Eagles Dare, for example. That was another one of them. But you might remember, David, that um, in the particular film, uh when the commandos get up onto the top of the the cliff and they go all the way through and they get to into the island, the people, they have to meet a couple of people from the resistance. Well, in the film, uh, these people from the resistance were played by um, two women, Irene Pappas being one of them, who, ended, who uh, was a Greek actress who ended up migrating to Australia and spending a lot of time here uh, and working here. But in the book... There's no women in it at all. Not, oh, a, single, not, a, not a single one. Yeah. And the interesting interesting thing is of um, the, uh, I think it's probably a Fontana paperback from probably the late 50s, early 60s. Oh, no, it would have been, no, sorry. The film came out in 1961. So this was probably a uh, edition of this particular book that was published after the film had been released. And so on the front cover, you've got three figures one that looks almost exactly like Gregory Peck. person standing behind him is another man who looks like David Niven, who was in the film and who played the explosives uh, expert. And at the back, 
is a woman standing with a submachine that scene doesn't, doesn't occur. Look at all. There's no, there's no women in this at all. Yeah, it's yeah. just blokes getting up, and the men yeah, from the yeah, um, the men from the men from the uh, resistance uh, for this particular uh, uh, commando raid were men. There was no, there was no women there. So that was, that was that's vastly amusing. Look, I really like this. Um, I mean, it's a it's a real throwaway job, uh, but having seen the film and liked the film, I mean, I. I've, I've actually started watching it again because it's available on Netflix, I believe. Oh, okay. uh, There's a lot of this stuff that's floating around that's hidden in the background that if you get into the main index of a lot of the streaming services, you'll never find. You have to go searching for it. Oh, look, Casadevarone's available. Well, it's a big wide screen, lots of colour, lots of action, lots of things blowing up, lots of intrigue. Uh, lots of treachery spot. That's good stuff. I love this. <laughs> and uh, as I said, it's a fantastic Saturday matinee, and it reads like a fantastic Saturday matinee novel. Uh, and I happened to pick it up dirt cheap at a secondhand bookstore for a couple of bucks, and I read it. Really enjoyed it. Good and stuff. I, and I think that um, if every now and again you're looking for a little bit of pure um, you know, escapism, well. You, <laughs> You know my old theory about how reading is a bit like food, mm. that you can have some really detailed and strong and uh, heady uh, food, but every now and again you want a good hamburger or a pizza, this is a great pizza novel. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, now I'm going to, with well, with the book I'm going to talk about next and the one that Perry's going to talk about next, we're going to make you feel very, very chilly. Because my next book is called Frostquake. So let's have a look at that. Okay, and this is uh, Frostquake, which is by Juliet Nicholson. And the book is subtitled The Frozen Winter of 1962 and How Britain Emerged a Different Country. Now, when I put this book on hold at the library, I, I had thought it would just be a straightforward account of the bitter winter of December 1962 to March 1963. But it's much more than that. It's a fascinating snapshot of a country and a culture in the process of radical change. And it's also a semi-autobiographical account of the author's life during that period, which is very interesting in itself. So this period, and that winter in particular, is of direct personal interest to me, because I grew up in England, and in December 1962, I was 11 years old, just about to start high school. And I remember that winter in particular because one night my father, who was a telephone engineer, was trapped in some telephone exchange, unable to get home because the roads were impassable due to snow. And the same night, all of the electrical power in our neighbourhood failed, and we therefore had no heating in the house. My mother, my much younger brother and myself were forced to huddle together close in bed with every quilt we owned on top in order not to freeze to death. And when my father finally got back the next day, my parents made up their mind to emigrate to sunny Australia, which we did less than two years later. So reading Nicholson's account of the extremes of that winter is is of obvious interest to me. But the author also fills the book with a really well-researched account of the social changes which were happening at the time. Uh, She's three years younger than myself, which makes her eight years old during the period that she describes. But she's bolstered her memories with solid, well-documented research. Uh, as well as extensive footnotes, there's also an excellent index to the book, which is important, I think, for a good uh, non-fiction book. So, cultural change was in the air, 
The Beatles were just beginning to achieve popularity, touring the country endlessly despite the appalling weather to give live performances. One of their songs, Please Please Me, hit the top of the charts in February 1963. First time they'd, they'd done that. Uh, a group of housemates who were living in a small flat in Edith Grove, led by a young man by the name of um, Mick Jagger, uh, studying at the London School of Economics, started up a band called the Rolling Stones. Uh, a contact suggested to Mick Jagger that if you, prefer, if you pretend to be wicked, you'll get rich. So that's what he did. During that same winter, a folk singer called Bob Dylan was brought to England by, to act in a drama as an actor. Interestingly, it was the poet W.H. Auden who'd seen Dylan perform in New York and who tipped off the producer. But when he reached England, it wasn't long before the producers realised that Dylan couldn't act. He couldn't really sing either, of course, but his songs were compelling. So a good deal of all this, this about the early days of pop music in Britain was new to me, and I, I really enjoyed finding out about it. At the same time, the designer Mary Quant was taking the fashion world by storm. The talented poet Sylvia Plath plunged into deep depression due, due to her husband Ted Hughes's infidelity, and she took her own life. The perfumer affair, which led to the downfall of Harold Macmillan's government, was in full flight. At the March election, Macmillan was thrown out, the Labour Party under Harold Wilson took office and began making progressive changes. So it was a time of ferment, a very interesting period to live through, and Juliet Nicholson does a great job in tying it all together. I did mention that it's also an autobiographical work, and in addition to, in addition to all of the above, it turns out that the author is the granddaughter of the prominent writer Vita Sackville-West and her husband Sir Harold Nicholson. And she describes many visits to their famous garden at Sissinghurst. Vita died a few months before this book begins, and the author describes Harold's debilita debilitating grief at her loss. I thought this was, this was a fascinating book. Highly recommended if you've got any interest in this this time in Britain. Um, would have been it would have been an interesting and difficult time. I think probably did you still have rationing? Or was it uh, not by then? There was rationing when I was when I was born. There was still rationing for um, you know things like orange juice and things. You know you couldn't get. Yeah, yeah. And there would have been, there would have been still um, uh, war damage around inside oh, yeah. the buildings there. Yeah, yeah. For sure. Yeah. Well, look at the, I've only got one one anecdote. Of, well, not even an anecdote, but even one story about Mick Jagger. And uh, it's a very interesting little um, piece that you can find on YouTube where uh, I think. Um, uh, Michael Parkinson's interviewing uh, David Bowie and uh, he, he asked Bowie how he got into music and he said well he was in art school as well he'd heard about this band that was on at the Elephant and Castle or somewhere south south of London he went along to have a have a look at him in the pub and he said there was about eight ten people in the audience and it was Mick Jagger and the Rolling Stones and they were playing a bit of the set and then at one stage or other um, somebody from the audience yells out to Mick Jagger why don't you get a haircut and Mick Jagger said, "What? It looked like you." <laughs> and, and David Bowie said, "Yes, this was exactly what I was looking for." Good so stuff. the whole thing that they ended up doing songs together, and there it was. He was in the audience, and he heard this. And thought, yep, this is the life for me. I'm not putting up with this stuff. So that's uh, that's that's out there, and that's available. But um, 
Bowie does a much, much better uh, Mick Jagger impersonation than I can do. And it's, um, uh, it's just so funny. Everybody cracks up because he just comes out of nowhere with this thing. It's just wonderful. Anyway, Very good. Yes, it must have been must have been a, a cold old time back in the old um, uh, back in the old Britain then with uh, no central heating and um, uh, with the electricity off. Mm. That wouldn't have been, it wouldn't have good. been terribly good at all. Uh, were they putting in coal fire bands by that stage? They were. They? they were. In fact, we had uh, it was a, a coke fire. We had to burn coke, yeah. uh, which is which is coal, which has had a lot of the volatiles already extracted from it. And it took quite a bit of getting it going. You had to have an electric starter to get it going, oh, okay. which is why we couldn't light the fire. All right. Um, but yes, it was a smokeless, what they call a smokeless zone. We weren't allowed to burn coal. Yeah. Yeah, so because they'd already had those um, massive smogs where so many mm. people died and the, the pea supers and, you know, uh, you hear about them, um, the, you know, the, the Sherlock Holmes stories, you hear about all the fogs that were there because everybody was burning wood and coal and it was gradually just making it worse and worse. Yeah, and there was a killer fog in about 1952, I think, yeah. All right, and that turned the, that turned the tide, yeah. so to speak. Mm. Yeah. Okay, all right, well, that sounds like an interesting book. Oh, it is. Um, I'm going to talk about a short novel. It's really only about a novella length, so it's really sort of 120, 130 pages. That's about all, really. Um, this is um, Cold Enough for Snow, Jessica O's debut novel. Um, and this book follows an unnamed narrator and her mother as they travel around Japan together. You sort of feel as though it's sort of slightly autobiographical, but it, um, the, these two these two women haven't seen each other in quite some time uh, and now live in separate countries. So I'm not entirely sure where the mother lives and you're not entirely sure where the woman, the narrator lives. You sort of surmise that... Uh, the the mother lives maybe somewhere in Hong Kong or China and the the daughter lives in Australia, but don't quote me on that. But that's just the feeling that I got and I may have been I may have missed something and got it completely wrong. Anyway, so they haven't seen each other for a while, so they decide to get together and meet up and uh, travel around uh Japan together at a time when it's cold enough for snow. Uh, so it's a bit too late for some things and a bit too early for others, but um, this is probably the best way for them to get together. Now, this book is told in a rather discursive style. style. Um, and while this may not be right, it reminded me a lot of Ger- uh, Gerald Manane's later works. So, you know, digressing from subject to subject, as they're walking around, they'll they'll see something and then there'll be a long discussion about that particular thing, which isn't to do with the two of them, but about the particular subject, like it's either a castle or it's uh, uh, a piece of samurai armour or a sword or kimonos or cloth or paper or something along those things that they base, the, the author starts talking about and then gradually brings it back again so that they come back to where the, the mother and the daughter are again. But as it goes on and on, you slowly get a bit more interesting um, information about the narrator's history with her mother and um, uh, the mother's husband and some of the mother's story. You're not terribly sure whether the mother's husband is the woman's father or not. But the problem with this, and while this, while this is, it's, it's lovely writing all the way right through, you get to the, you get near the end and you sort of think, you know, um, doesn't make a lot of progression here. It's really sort of like a, it's sort of like a discursive travel blog, and I don't mean that to be a derogatory sense because it's very, very well written. 
but it just means that you know the, the characters are there. You get a bit of the history, you get a bit of the family history, but nobody really changes very much. There's no great revelations like, oh my God, I didn't know that, and um, oh that changes the way I think about you and about my father or my your father, your husband and my cousins and my siblings and all the rest of them. No, there's none of that. It's just basically bits of information slowly sort of seep out. So there's really no real major drama or tension that's built up in here. And what you know, so the the reader will either follow it fairly well or get bored by it. And I can understand why people get halfway through this and go, nah, not interested in this, this is boring. And at one point the narrator actually notes my boyfriend, because she ends up, she has a boyfriend even though she's left him behind. He's um, he's back home and she's off with him with the mother. My boyfriend often joked that I was the kind of person who would be happy in a mountain temple, told only to sweep the dust from the floor each day, to contemplate the nature of time and labour and the difference or absolute sameness between a dirty surface and a clean one. Mm. And that's the sort of discursive thing that they talk about. So that's it's meditative. But if you're looking for a plot, if you're looking for drama, you're really not going to get it here. But you're going to get that sort of wandering around, thinking about things. And I reckon that that comment pretty much explains the whole the whole novel, to me at least. It's all there in that particular um, piece. And I found it interesting and well written, but it's just not going to be one of those books that's going to last with me for terribly long. It, it was very... Um, divisive when the book came out earlier this year or the end of last year earlier this year I think it was and so there was a lot of some people saying this is absolutely spectacular I could stay in this world forever and keep on reading it and other people were going what <laughs> what why did, why did I waste two hours of my life reading this but look I um I think it's worth uh having a look at um and I, honest to God, I do not know whether any one particular person is going to read this and go, yep, this is absolutely wonderful, or going to read it and go, if you ever recommend me another book in my life, I'm going to have to punch you in the face. <laughs> I just don't know whether it's one of those two. You either love it or you hate it. Oh, but, well, I sort of love bits of it, but I didn't overly like a whole lot of it. Um, so maybe I'm one of those weird people that fits in the middle. I could, look, I could, see, I could see really good things about this, but I could also get frustrated by the fact that it had done enough of what it, of what it was what it should have done. And I was thinking about this recently, and I was thinking about um, oh, some a Japanese film that I um, uh, saw recently called Drive My Car, which was a long three hour meditative Japanese uh, piece. But there was a lot more tension in that, and I sort of think that a lot more character development and things get discovered through the discussions. And I don't think enough was discovered here. There's a there's a hint about what could have happened. And you just want them to tip over the edge to sort of say, well, you know, you don't you sort of want the mother to say something to the light to the daughter like you only saw half of what was going on in the family and this is what the other half was. And now it's time for you to learn this. But you don't really get that. So I, I gave this a three point three out of five. I think a lot of people have would give it, you know, mid high fours, but um, nah, I couldn't do that. Do that anyway, interesting, but yeah, yeah. well, as we noted earlier, it's uh, on the uh, shortlist for the age book of the year, so it'll be interesting mm. to see how it, how it does. Yes, it will be interesting to see what people have to say about it. Mm. Yeah, all right, well, I'll get on to my last book, which is a very interesting book. I thought, and now this is The Circle by Dave Eggers, 
Now, this is not a new novel. It was written about 10 years ago and it was because it was published in 2013. So I presume it was being written in, 20, in 2012. So given that it deals very much with powerful technology companies and social networks, you'd think that by now, after 10 years, it would be well out of date. But that's not the case. Given when it was written, I think we can say that it was extremely prescient. The novel's meant as a warning, and I think it succeeds in that. In many ways, it's quite disturbing, and it sort of exemplifies the phrase, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. So the focus of the story is a huge technology corporation called The Circle, which combines a social network like Facebook, a search engine like Google, and the device manufacturing capabilities of Apple. But it has much wider ambitions than any of those organizations. So we're introduced to the organization through the experiences of young May Holland, who's thrilled to have landed a job at the Circle through the influence of a friend, Annie, who's been working there for some, some time. So it took me a while to get into this because the, the, a large slab at the beginning of the book is, is May being shown around this huge campus with its incredibly good facilities for staff. And as, as she's being taken around, we discover more and more about the Circle and what it's trying to do. I found, so I found this a bit slow because really because we're now, now, now so familiar with these kinds of high-tech, superior quality facilities, no expense spared, that have been developed in the real world for companies like Facebook and Google. And therefore, none of it seemed very surprising or particularly interesting. However, as the book progresses, we see May being transformed from a, a nervous newcomer into a valued employee. And eventually, she she is uh, she becomes a wholehearted devotee of the circle's plans but these plans become more and more creepy more and more invasive and more and more dismiss- dismissive of privacy concerns you might recall perry the statement that uh, it was made by scott mcneely of sun microsystems in 1999 you have no privacy get over it and that's certainly the philosophy of the circle whose motto is all that happens must be known To this effect, the Circle's engineers have developed high-definition miniature cameras which wirelessly connect to the internet and which broadcast continually. They're installing millions of these little cameras all over the world, saying that they will reduce crime, terrorism and the power of autocratic states. And the Circle is pushing for all politicians to go transparent, which means to wear personal video cameras all the time that broadcast their every move and every word. As well as all that, they're pushing their own payment system, planning to take over most world currencies. Think Bitcoin before Bitcoin became a thing. Now, when they meet resistance to their plans from politicians, well, that's not really a problem. The circle controls the search engine, which everyone now now uses. Is it any surprise that politicians who oppose the circle are suddenly revealed as having connections to child pornography rings or having their secret bank accounts exposed. If you control everyone's access to information, you control everything. So the protagonist, May Holland, goes through a process with several embarrassing ups and downs in her job, which push, each of which pushes her more and more to accept all of the circle's plans as benign for the good of humankind, forcing her and us all to be our better selves And May's character arc is where the novel lost me. 
because she through this process she becomes an unlikable and annoying main character with no redeeming features and so I, I don't think the book works very well as a novel so May continues to act in ways which she clearly shouldn't be acting you know making one bad decision after another it's one of those books where I want to shout at the character don't do that you idiot but the more that May accepts the circle's philosophy, the more she drives away her parents and her old friends. There is another plot thread which I'm not sure I want to go into, but it's there's a she meets a character wandering around the circle who's a, a strange individual and she becomes involved with him. But she's never quite sure whether he actually does work there like he says he does, or whether he's some sort of spy or intruder. And that that that's this plot thread had the potential to be interesting and build some tension, but when we finally work, find out who this character is, I I thought it was a bit you know a bit low temperature and low key. Um, anyway, we we go on with May. May's devotion to the Circle's philosophy culminates in a terrible episode where she's broadcasting. She's become transparent herself, and she's broadcasting her entire life to the whole world. Having, and she decides to use the power of the Circle to track down a previous lover who's tried to get away from the increasingly ubiquitous surveillance. Now this become, turns into a, a savage public hunt for this man and it ends with his suicide on camera. But even this isn't, an, isn't enough to sway May from her devotion to the circle. And she comes up with her own set of three principles, which clearly are meant to echo those of Orwell's 1984. Secrets are lies. Sharing is caring. Privacy is theft. These principles are then enshrined in the circle and published and repeated through all the circle's outlets, which are many. So you could definitely argue that the circle is like an inverted 1984, with the power of the state now invested in a massive corporation. But instead of the single surveillance camera inside Winston Smith's room, the circle would have installed a dozen and had him wear one around his neck. And the point is that the majority of people like May Holland would welcome that would wear those cameras voluntarily and joyfully and think that it was all for the common good. So, like 1984 and like Kim Stanley Robinson's The Ministry for the Future, The Circle is a powerful polemic and a dire warning of what the future could bring. I I didn't think it worked as a novel, but certainly as a, as a warning and a polemic, it, it's, it was good. So, yeah, top notch. In, anyway, interesting that it was made into a film in 2017. Oh, I did not know that. With uh, Emma Watson oh, okay. from the Harry Potter films in the um, in the lead role, yeah, uh, and uh, the lead male character of Eamon Bailey was played by Tom Hanks. Ah, interesting, interesting. Yes, I can, uh, I can imagine that. Yeah, uh, so it's uh, it's referred to as a 2017 American techno thriller. I must look it, it up. It didn't do all that well when it first uh, came out. It got didn't get a lot of it got a lot of negative reviews, but um, should be interesting. But while I. While you were um, uh, talking about this, I was reminded of uh, a book that I have a copy of here somewhere, but I don't believe I ever read it. It's one of those ones that's been floating around. And that is a book called The Continuous Catherine Morton Ho by D.G. Compton from 1974. Oh, yes, I've read that. Yes, very good. Which was also filmed by Bertrand uh, Tavenier in 1980 as Death Watch, uh, starring Harvey Keitel. 
And that was a similar sort of arrangement, wasn't it? Where a woman, except that it was just the one individual, whereas the, yeah, that's the right, circle the is, one. is the entire world. That's yeah. Well, this sort of it's a bit like the um, uh, the Truman shows, that, that that reality TV thing where they just have cameras on somebody twenty four hours a day. In that case, they don't know. Well, Truman doesn't know that the cameras are on him, but everybody else in that particular world does. So that's a sort of a variation of it. Yeah, so yeah. The, the, the unsleeping eye or the continuous Catherine Morton eye was sort of an earlier version, and this is a more updated one by bringing in the, the high-tech uh, companies into it. So there's, there's, there's a, it's nice seeing those threads, isn't it? That somebody has got something, and then the world has changed. So there's 20, you know, 30 or 40 years since the Compton novel came out. And so having somebody else updating it and having a look at it and go, well, okay, so what happens if we put that idea into this current world with what we know now and see where that goes? That's bloody scary. It is. Now, the reason I actually went and borrowed this book from the library was that uh, Eggers Eggers has got a a new novel out, which the library doesn't have as yet, uh, called The Every. Uh, And The Every, I think, targets Amazon or Amazon-like company, uh, The Every. Uh, the everything store. So I'd like to read that one too. After having read read this now, so yeah, interesting. Okay. Hmm. All right, that sounds um, so interesting. But isn't it isn't it um, interesting that if we look at something that was written in 1974 and we look at the way we live now, and we are living in a science fictional world, uh, what we've got now would have been completely and utterly science fictional, you know, in the 70s. And um, yeah, it's just an interesting. Interesting way our world and universe has changed since the time that we were um, much younger than we are today, David. Okay, well, my last book is a novel called At Night All Blood is Black, which was the winner of the 2021 International Booker Prize. It was written by David Diop, originally published in French in 2018 and translated by Enna Enna Moscovicus. Cavicus in 2020, and as I said, it won the 2021 International Booker Prize. This is a bit of a harrowing book and tough one to finish up on. I probably would have been better to finish up on uh, Guns Never Own so I could go <laughs> go out on a joke. But yeah, yeah. this one, this one doesn't have any jokes in it, David. Okay. Not not at all. Okay, so it starts off in France in the First World War, where two Senegalese soldiers, Alpha. Niade and uh, Medima Diop, interesting name for the, one of the characters, same as the, um, the author's name, uh, have joined the war with France. So they've travelled from uh, Senegal to, uh, to France and they joined the war with France against the Germans. And so they're right, fighting in the trenches. It's wet, it's cold, they can't get dry, they're not very happy blokes. And they're in a uh, Senegalese unit with a whole lot of other um, Senegalese soldiers and um, uh, French commanders, and so on. Now, one fateful day after they've been ordered to go over the top of the trenches and head out towards the uh, the Germans, uh, they get um, uh, Alpha and Mademba get separated. But Alpha find, later on finds Mademba in a foxhole, and he's been mortally wounded to the extent that, uh, and some of this might be a little bit harrowing, so just a bit of a spoiler here that things might get a little bit tough. Um, he's been wounded in such a way that all of his intestines have fallen out. And he's spending all of his time trying to stuff his intestines back into his stomach, but he's just been blown open. Uh, and there's nothing that either of them can do about it because there's nowhere for them to go. There's no no, just, no medicines at all. 
and Alpha is just basically there to comfort him um, until the end comes. And Mademba keeps saying to him, "You know, you're 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 my more than brother. You're, you've been with me for my whole life. You have to put me out of my, my misery. You have to kill me now. You have to cut my throat and kill me. Please cut my throat." And Alpha refuses, and he refuses him three times until Mademba dies. There's this first opening sequence of about. 30 pages is really bloody harrowing where he's sitting there and it's just it's almost like the author is just pounding you with a hammer mm. hitting you over the head with all this stuff about the what the guy's feeling while he's there talking about his best mate his brother um well he's, he's not his actual brother but he's but he's he's been with him with him since the primary school since the very early days and here he is he's watching him die and Alpha um, basically wraps him all up and carries him back to uh, the, the trenches that they're in and uh, hands, hands the body over and then heads back out into no man's land again. And you know that something's not really right with Alpha at this particular stage. He's basically really been traumatised by this whole deal. And he, so he gets out into no man's land and then starts scuffling his way on uh, on on the ground, basically crawling along, face to the dirt, all the way across to the German trenches where he's able to pick out, they don't say how, but he picks out one of the German German troops, carry him, carries him back to a foxhole and cuts him open yeah. the same way that his mate was and watches him die. But at the end, just at the end, he does kill the guy. Leaves the body there, but he cuts, cuts the German soldier's right hand off and takes that back as a trophy. And all of his mates back there say, oh, isn't this fantastic? He's brought the, the, the German's rifle and the right hand back. So, you know, he's, he's a wonderful guy. Next day, he goes out and does exactly the same thing. And he keeps doing it time after time. So for about the first four times, they all think he's really wonderful. And he's always fantastic. By about the fifth time, they've come to the conclusion this guy's basically a demon. And he's out there devouring the souls of these German soldiers. And they're really worried about him. And he ends up doing this seven times. And as much as the authorities try to find the hands that he's chopped off, he's found a way to hide them. And he hides them by um, and preserves them by covering them in salt and sticking them in the ground behind the ovens, behind the kitchen ovens in the dirt, so that they sort of dry out and that he's able to sort of mummify them and keep them with him. After about the seventh one, that this time that this happens, uh, the commander basically hauls, hauls Alpha into, the, uh, into his office and says to him that uh, he's going to be sending back to the rear, the, the, the rear lines of, of uh, where, where the army is for a rest, almost in inverted commas. They've pretty much decided that he's really gone insane. Uh, and it's told from the point of view of Alpha, so he's getting all this stuff, and he's basically misinterpreting every single thing that's said to him. He doesn't understand what's going on. He thinks he's going back for a rest, and that's going to be fine. So he goes back to a hospital, um, and uh, he attacks a, a, a nurse uh, that uh, he thinks has been looking at his the middle of his body uh, longingly, and so he um, uh, thinks that he's misinterpreted what she says, and he uh, sexually assaults her. This is not an not an easy book to read. Mm. Uh, I can understand why it made a very uh, it's it's about as visceral a novel as you can possibly get. Luckily, it's short. It's only about one hundred and forty five pages, 
but it's a tough book to read. And you wouldn't say that it's enjoyable at all, but you won't read anything else like it and you won't won't forget it in a hurry. You know, there's some of these ones that I've mentioned earlier on where I think, yeah, look, I'll just forget this one pretty quick. I don't think I'll forget this one in a hurry. Mm. I mean, it's um, the title, At Night All Blood is Black. I mean, it really gives you the impression that this is like a, a vampire horror novel. And in many ways, it actually has that sort of atmosphere of the same sort of thing. You could almost put this down into the horror category and it would probably sweep the field. So just be aware that while it's got a real a lot of really, really good things going for it, it's a harrowing read and one of the toughest ones I've had to read in quite some time. Mm-hmm. I shouldn't say I had to read, but it was the International Booker winner, so I started to read it and I thought, oh, God. I read the first 30 pages. had to put it down for two days. I went away and I thought, well, I better finish this off. And I started going through it again. And it becomes sort of compelling. But if you don't like horror and you don't like, well, if you don't like viscera, um, don't read this. Mm, I, think, I think I'll be staying clear. It'll be, it'll be, it'll be too tough. Oh, dear. But it's, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a stunning read. And um, I think I'll keep thinking about it for quite some time. And uh, it won't ever go away from me, I don't think. There you go. Yep, and that's it. I think I'm done I now. I think we're both done, yeah. All right. I think we're well, both done after that one. All right. So we, we were going to talk, I think, a bit about how we're going to uh, plan our schedule for the next few months because you're yeah. going away. Yes, I'm going away at the end of um, uh, August and heading off to the Chicago Worldcon, and I'll be there a week, and then heading off into Canada, uh, doing a long tour across Canada uh, for about four or five weeks. So I'll be away for... Oh, 32, 33 days, somewhere around there. Uh, so for the whole of September. So what we've decided to do is to record a number of episodes beforehand. Uh, and so that uh, uh, you and I, David, will basically uh, work. We know, we know what we want to do in the next couple of uh, episodes, and that will carry us through until the time that I get back. And so what we'll be doing is we're recording these during August uh, and then you'll come in later on and put the news over the top, sort of all the good stuff that comes up, including the, the Hugo winners when they're um, announced, mm-hmm. uh, when that becomes uh, when that becomes relevant. And then we'll release them on our normal uh, three-weekly schedule. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so that way uh, uh, you'll hear my dulcet tones all the time when I'm no longer in the country and I'm overseas, but um, well, you can you can ring up, ring me up and tell me the Hugo results or something like that. Well, I could do that, but it's probably going to be three in the morning. No, we're, no, we're you're not do going to be very happy about that. <laughs> no, are we you? don't do that. Then. No, no, no. Look, you're, you're, look, you'll get it quicker off off the website. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, to a website or through Locust Magazine. Oh, okay, uh, cool, cool. early the next morning. Yeah. Uh, but no, we, do, we, we do expect a, we do expect a, re- a report from you about the how the convention went and what. what yeah, it was yeah, like. I'll do that when I get back. That's absolutely no problem. And maybe even I'll um, I'll try and set up a call some stage and um, uh, you can record it from your end. Sure. And we'll, we'll do it via we'll do it via uh, Zoom and uh, or Skype and other no, ways. Uh, you can record it and I can tell you. I can tell you what I got up to or didn't get up to. I'll, I'll leave out all the um, embarrassing and sordid pieces. Uh, ho- hopefully there aren't too many of those. Um, the, the convention does have a full, fully, masked, full, fully masked policy so that whenever you're in anywhere to do with the um, uh, convention, you have to wear a mask, which is what uh, my wife and I will be doing anyway, although she won't be going to the convention itself. She'll be floating around Chicago and looking around. 
But uh, other than when you're specifically eating or drinking, uh, they want you to be wearing a mask. Mm. And I've got to be careful because I don't want to end up getting COVID and losing a week out of my, no. uh, uh, out of my holiday. No, that's right. So I'll be uh, making sure that I am masked up everywhere uh, on the plane. So that's going to be like a... Uh, close to 24 hours with a mask on continuously. I'm not. I'm not exactly looking forward to that. No. But um, unfortunately, it's probably the only. It's the only thing we can do. The only way we can um, we can get there. And so um, uh, we just have to have the right, uh, good fitting ones with um, uh, good padding around. Good padding around the nose and big enough. Uh, I've got a big enough head, uh, and that is not a matter of um, uh, ego. It's more a matter of I know how big my head is because I've measured it. And um, uh, I've got a very large hat size, so I need a very large mask. And I've found some, and I think we'll be all right. I'm just going to. The thing about us with, uh, with beards beard, is a problem, yes. With bearded chaps. You might need to is, crop it a bit, I think. I might need to trim it up really yes, quite I close, think so. I think, just to make sure that I can get those that mask on quite properly. Yeah. So that's what we're basically aiming to do. We will be um, here in uh, three weeks with our next episode, which is going to be about crime fiction. Yep. Uh, and after that, uh, we'll be dealing with, um, as I recall, uh, the next Hugo Time Machine. No, indeed, yes. have to read those books still. Yes. So, yes, we've, I've got a bit of reading to do between now and the time I go, but I've got, um, you know, 14 hours on a flight through to Los Angeles where I can sit and finish something. And um, uh, I've got... Um, Oh, well, I've actually got to finish it before then. You do, you do. You have yeah, to do it before. Oh, oh, God, I can't even, can't even tell you. But anyway. <laughs> we can always delay it. We'll see. Oh, no, that's all right. No, that's okay. Look, I'll, I'll, I'll be able to get through it. I'll be able to get through it okay. It's a matter of uh, I'll be reading something else when I'm on that plane, and that's what I will talk about when um, when I get back. But it was, I, was, I was very interested to um, uh, read about the Sea of Tranquility that you talked about earlier when you said some of it was set on Vancouver Island because I will be on Vancouver yeah. Island uh, at the beginning of um, October and uh, be able to have a look and see what it's like. They're probably only spending, I think we're there for a couple of days and I think we're spending most of it around the town of Victoria, uh, which is, uh, well, the Commonwealth Games was there sometime about 20-odd years ago and um, uh, we're going over to have a bit of a look at that before we get on a cruise up to Alaska. Oh, sorry for some. Yep, okay. <sighs> It's a tough life, David. Tough life. But, tough um, haven't had a haven't had a long holiday for uh, quite some time, so now's the time to be doing it. It's almost three years, and I know that a lot of people are saying, "Don't even bother going because you know you're just going to get sick." Well, yeah, you, you spend your risk tokens where you can, where you do. Where you do, yeah, you right. do. So we'll see how we go. But anyway, until next time, David, yep. we'll be talking we'll about crime fiction. Yep. We'll see you. We'll then. see you all then. Okay. Okay. Bye. Okay. Bye. Bye.